on episode five of the Insure Tech Geek podcast, talking Insure Tech Connect and the history and disruption of insurance with Caribou Honig, chairman and co founder at Insure Tech Connect. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives with our own research and development team into technology that we see changing this industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. Today, we're excited to be talking with Caribou Honig. Caribou is the chairman and co-founder of the InsureTech Connect conference, among many other things that we're actually going to talk about. Caribou, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. I'm delighted to be here with you. Man, we're thrilled to have you on the podcast. It's, uh, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a super geek. I love all things tech, all things insurance, and I love a good conference. I've, I've gotten to speak at over 400 conferences in the last 12 years, and absolutely love uh, a good get together. There's amazing energy and amazing connections that happen at these things. And we're going to talk about the awesome energy that is going to take place in a couple of weeks at InsureTech Connect in a minute. But before we do that, Caribou, I would love to just talk about you. You're one of the people behind InsureTech. And I want to talk about just your background. You know, where where are you born and raised? I know you're joining us from uh, Richmond, Virginia today, correct? That's right. That's where I live. Awesome. And you've been there for a while, but but let's go way back, uh, back into time and talk about, you know, where where are you born and raised? Uh, where did you go study? What did you study? And and what landed you uh, in this space as a as an influencer and, and key player in the insured tech space? So the, the fabulous life of Caribou Honig is what you're asking. for. Absolutely. Like. Including how did you get an epic name like Caribou? Uh, well, OK, so so we'll go way back to the beginning. Uh, you have to go back uh, about 50 years now. And my, my folks were driving up to Quebec on a road trip. They stopped overnight in the town of uh, northern Maine. Uh, sorry, the, the town of Caribou, Maine. And um, I'm named, apparently, the story goes, after the town where I was conceived. <laughs> yes. Now, 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 if you like that, this being a road trip, the uh, standard joke is I'm lucky not to be named Buick. Exactly. Or Ford or Mustang. Yeah. Or some, something. So much worse and so many different dimensions. Exactly. Um, but that's so, awesome. I mean, first off, a road trip to Quebec is always going to be fun and the food's going to be great because Quebec knows food. And right. number two, you end up with an epic name for the rest of your life. So exactly. now where, where, where did you end up growing up? So I grew up in upstate New York, uh, outside of Albany. Nice. Uh, we had, when I was first growing up, we had about 90 acres and two cows. Uh, it was actually a very formative time for me, as you'd expect. That's a, a lot, lot of land per cow. It is a lot of land per cow. It's actually um, <laughs> really uh, a neat way to grow up. And uh, the, the flip side of it is, I, I like to say, I, I never really developed natural social skills. So any social skills I have, I kind of learned... Um, a little bit more cognitively, but uh, so it was a little isolating at times. But it was also great as I, you know, named the grasshoppers that were going by and you know, played a lot with the grass and the nature and stuff like that. Um, so now that we got that out of the way, uh, <laughs> so I, I, I grew up in upstate New York, 
uh, went to Harvard undergrad, studied uh, physics and philosophy, uh, went from there to University of Virginia for right. law and business. I got to pause uh, you. I have to pause you for a second. All right. Because you studied two very different disciplines. And I went to an engineering high school in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I grew up. And um, I, I took four years of college level computer science in high school. It was that that was like what our whole high school was about. And my computer science teacher was actually a master's an undergrad and master's graduate in philosophy. So half of my computer science education was philosophy. And I find it fascinating that you spent time both in physics and philosophy because they're not perceptibly connected, but they absolutely are intertwined. And that, mu that must have been a great foundational education for you to study those two uh, disciplines. I like your choice of word there, foundational. I tend to approach problems from first principles, right? which sometimes slows me down uh, because there's a whole lot of second principles, derived principles that can be uh, very effective for problem solving. But I, I like to get to the, the root base of these things and physics, I think of as the root base, the, the first principles uh, study for the sciences. And I think of philosophy as really that first principles look at humanities. So, where I see them tied together is I just have this appetite for understanding things at the first principles level. Uh, again, sometimes it slows me down, sometimes it has me asking questions that are a little bit off the beaten path, uh, but uh, it's what I enjoy. You know, my, my computer science teacher, because he was obsessed with opening our minds outside, way outside of computational sciences, um, he made me watch a movie that really unhinged my brain called Mind Walk. Do you remember this movie? I can't say that I've seen that one. It, it was based on a book called The Turning Point, which is a nonfiction book by um, Frithof Capra, who also authored The Tao of Physics. And uh, Mind Walk is a movie that I... First off, I strongly encourage you to go watch it. It's a combination of physics and philosophy. The whole movie is about the philosophy of physics and of, uh, of space. But it, it really opened my brain on thinking and problem solving and questioning the nature of reality, which really helps when you're trying to solve business problems and problems of, of you know, whether they're of, the, of business or of industry right, is to, to have like a foundational way, like you just described, of approaching problems. That's right. You, you, it, it really helps you untangle what's causing what, <laughs> yeah. and then how do we model that out? Yeah. Right? The, the philosophy piece is a lot of actual, like, what is the root cause? And then the physics is great training for modeling, for building a mental model about how the world might work. Yeah, which is, which is critical to looking at a really old, established, well-moneyed industry like insurance and saying, how do we upend this, right? Like how do we how do we dramatically improve something um, exactly. this big and this complex? Um, now you after Harvard you went to one of my favorite combo programs. You got a JD MBA from University of Virginia in one of my favorite cities in America, Charlottesville. Yeah, it was a, a really uh, great education and a great time, and you know a good way to um, sort of bridge myself from that uh, abstract physics and philosophy into uh, some <laughs> practical applications, let's say. Yeah, that's an understatement, right? I mean, uh, so Z-Imp, like, do I, do, can we talk about that on here or is that just uh, taboo when, when we talk about, I remember the, when I went there, the <laughs> no answer, that means we're not talking about it. <laughs> I, love, I love all the secret societies at UVA. I think it's fascinating. Um, and uh, of course, 
you were there. Oh my goodness. You were at UVA, maybe right at the tail end of when Dave Matthews was playing in the, uh, the bars there. Yes. Um, and, uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't think that I crossed paths there. I, I, uh, I, you know, it's one of those things where in hindsight, I, I realized, Oh my gosh, I was a little bit more insular than I should have been. But yeah, there's uh, a few haunts that eventually I discovered where apparently he was uh, in his prime. Quite active. Yeah, that's awesome. So walk me through, you know, MBA, law degree, Harvard undergrad. What happened professionally between that and now that led you into InsurTech? Yeah, I like to say I've really had three acts in my professional career. First act uh, coming out of grad school was going to Capital One, uh, the big credit card issuer and bank. Uh, and, And I went there in 1996. Uh, and although most people today probably know of Capital One as a big, successful bank, at the time, it was really uh, a disruptor. Uh, and it had, oh, maybe 1,200 employees when I started. Uh, by the time I left 10 years later, it had about 20,000. So we really went through hypergrowth, uh, which opened my eyes, taught me a few lessons unto itself. Um, I, I took a year off after uh, a decade of Capital One, having a really nice run of it. Uh, watched Netflix, uh, played with my children, and listened to the universe. It was uh, it was productive, uh, and fortunately, the universe spoke to me. I reconnected with a couple other former Capital One executives, and uh, we ended up creating a small boutique venture capital firm, uh, trying to help another generation of startups take the lessons and battle scars we had developed from our time at Capital One, uh, deploying data and information business strategies to the next generation. So uh, that was a firm, uh, QED Investors, a great firm, had an amazing time there. Uh, As we grew, uh, we added a few partners. Uh, We uh, started to specialize a bit at the individual partner level. And in 2015, uh, I like to say it smelled like there was something really interesting about to happen in InsurTech. We'd already made a couple uh, InsurTech investments by that time, but it seemed like there was an inflection point about to happen. So I started to focus most of my neurons on the insure tech space. As part of that, I was looking around for a good industry conference where I could talk to other investors interested in the space, talk to the entrepreneurs building the next generation of interesting things, talk to the innovation executives from within the industry. Couldn't really find any good conference like that. So I had the harebrained idea that since I needed this to exist for my day job, maybe I should just create it. Uh, lucky for me, I got connected with a fellow, Jay Weintraub, who actually knew what he was doing when it comes to trying to build an industry conference like that. And we were able to collaborate and pull together InsureTech Connect. I had so much fun doing that, uh, that uh, I went from my second act of the venture capital side to now what I call my third act, which is really a mix of different interesting activities, uh, all pointed towards uh, helping innovation, helping, quite frankly, uh, helping good people succeed at doing interesting things. So I continue to help grow the conference where I can. Um, I uh, work with the same team, actually, to create another industry conference called HR Transform, focused on the impact of technology on the workplace and the future of work. Uh, I'm on a a few uh, startup uh, independent uh, director board positions. Uh, Became a special advisor to a small boutique VC firm focused on HR tech, future of work investments. And I like to say, besides that, I mostly just spend my time uh, talking to people and being a nuisance. Yeah, and that's uh, 
being a nuisance can actually be a really good thing. It just depends on, I guess, your perspective, right? And uh, and what the what the end aim is. Uh, I I uh, I've prided myself on being a nuisance in many cases. I served on city council here in College Station, Texas, for six years, and was uh, one of the few people elected that actually understood risk, risk management, insurance, and technology, and and uh, embarked on a whole bunch of. Th- Things where I think uh, quite a few people considered me a nuisance, but I was uh, working pretty hard to try and modernize their risk management, you know, and really look at because a, a city carries an enormous amount of risk. It's a, it's a it's astounding how much risk they carry, right? A city like College Station, Texas, is, has one hundred and seventeen thousand people now, one hundred twenty one thousand. Sorry, uh, but annual budget of three hundred and sixty five million dollars. In my six years running the budget committee. Uh, we authorized two billion dollars of spending, and it was it was just amazing how much risk we carried. The size of risk and the num- the frequency of incidents was pretty astounding. And uh, you know, often with uh, with good intent, being a nuisance can result in some great things. It looks like that's been the result with InsureTech Connect. Is you uh, this has grown into quite a deal? You know, it, it's always very rewarding to see something that you put your heart and soul into. Uh, doing well and succeeding and you know being something that people value. So we started out, uh, the first event was October of 2016, which isn't really that long ago now. And we had about 1,500 people attend, uh, which surprised us, quite frankly. It was actually standing room only. We were worried about whether the fire marshal might yep. uh, come in and complain. Uh, but we, we clearly saw that we tapped into something uh, and, and one of the most rewarding experiences of my whole career still, I recall st- taking 100 paces back during lunchtime, and you just sort of see uh, 500 conversations happening right, among the people who were there. Most of those conversations would not have happened but for our pulling this together. So that was just very gratifying for me. Uh, we had 3,500 people the next year, then 5,500 people uh, the following year, and this year, uh, I'd say we're on track. It's just uh, a couple weeks away. This year, we're on track for about seventy five hundred people to attend. <laughs> Good lord! You know, I've I've had to I've spoken at a lot of conferences and a lot of events, and I've and I've also run a lot of my own. That is that is a huge scale. It also puts you into the a different scale on the con- just the conference facilities you have to book for something that big. Yeah, so, some some people like Las Vegas where we hold it. Some people don't like Las Vegas, by personal preference. But the truth is there's only a handful of cities that have the infrastructure to support something like that. And there's only a handful of venues within those cities that can really support it properly. Um, so we, we've been happy with, uh, with Las Vegas as yeah. a place for it. Yeah, well, it's either yeah. Vegas. It's really Vegas or Orlando at that point. I mean, you you really don't have many choices but but the what's also telling and what I'm excited about with InsureTech Connect this year is you've got people like uh, the co-CEO of uh, Markel Corporation. You've got the president of Allstate Personal Lines. You've got the exec chairman of Lennar Corporation. You've got, you know, you've got the chairman and CEO of Star Insurance. You've got the co-founder of Recode. I mean, this is a, a who's who list in the insurance space. The director of business risk and insurance at Google um, you know, we, I can keep going on the list of just the presenters and, uh, and people that are going to be presenting and speaking here, much less the attendee list, which is also a list of heavy hitters. So there's a lot of connections being made. Uh, I would imagine there's a lot of deals being funded at this conference as well, though. 
I like to say that I really want this to be an event where business gets done, right? At the beginning of this podcast, you said you really like conferences. Uh, I think you're maybe not unique, but unusual in that regard. I, I think a lot of people actually dread conferences. And part of my commitment when we started this thing was I only want to be involved in helping create a conference that I actually want to go to. Amen. And, uh, you know, and, and what does that mean? Right. It's not about it's not about a, making a boondoggle. Right. I, I don't want to take time away from my family uh, to go to a boondoggle. Right? I'd rather go on boondoggles with my family. Yep. I want to make something where business is actually getting done. And, and that can take the form of people you know, coming up to speed, people consuming the content that we have on stage. And it, it's important then that we have luminaries on stage, like you point out. Uh, but it's also about helping people to have the conversations they want with people who they, they already know they want to meet with right, and try to move deals forward. And the serendipity of meeting people that you don't know yet and you don't even know that you want to meet them yet, but it turns out you do. Right? And that serendipity actually is very powerful. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole uh, set of anecdotes we collect around uh, people meeting at ITC and a business deal actually happens as a result of it. And, and again, that's very gratifying for me. Like if I'm going to spend time helping to create this thing, uh, I want it to actually be moving people's agendas forward. And in that way, like maybe helping move the industry forward. So let's sit. That's a wonderful segue. Let's talk about the industry. Why insurance? Why, you know, obviously, you spend a lot of time in the financial services space with Capital One. And you, you had to peel back the onion. And it's kind of hard to spend time in financial services, not touch the insurance space heavily, right? Because there's, so, there's just so much, they're, they're so intertwined, right? But, but why insurance? Why tech applied to insurance? Um, why does it matter? Yeah. So I'll start with a little bit of why I'm involved here. And there's a few reasons. One is, you know, for just from a, a skills perspective and a, a mental model perspective, Having spent you know, close to 20 years on the banking side of the world and fintech investing and all, you know, I don't actually believe I know all the answers about how insuretech is going to play out. What I do believe I know from, from my time on the banking and fintech side is I do know most of the right questions to ask. And that, that's you know, two-thirds of the battle, typically. Uh, and, so, uh, I, I, and then I actually quite enjoy the learning experience of saying, okay, I think I know the right questions, but I'm going to learn a whole new set of answers that are novel to me at least. Uh, and I enjoy that, that learning piece of it. Uh, I also really like um, insurance as a, as a product, as a good for people and society. Uh, I, I like to joke, you never hear anyone say, oh, I am just up to my eyeballs in insurance, or I'm on such an insurance treadmill that I just can't get off. Like it's rare that people are truly overinsured in a bad way. Right? It's rare that people have been oversold on insurance. That makes it actually a a very good product, um, and I, I really quite like being involved in helping move an industry forward that has such a fundamentally good product uh, for people for the the consumers of it. Now, at the industry level, right? When you say why insure tech, why is why now? I mean, that's one of the questions too. Um, and, and my answer to that is there's this whole pent up set of technologies ready to be deployed, waiting. It's like water behind the dam and it's finally bursting enough to get out. 
And I, I can point to not just like the web, right, and the internet, which, by the way, in my view, was plenty strong to really transform banking, but actually did not transform the insurance sector. It took not just the internet and the web, but also smartphone penetration being near universal and cloud computing becoming now finally mature for the enterprise to use. And uh, drones, as an example, like there's all these technologies that are ready to be deployed and are actually quite powerful for an information business like insurance. So I think that's what's what's pushing things to be in the last few years, uh, really ready for insure tech to have an impact. Mm. Yeah, I speak a lot and have spoken a lot about the convergence of a suite of technologies that once they once they arrived simultaneously, allowed for products to be developed that were much bigger than the sum of the parts. So if you look at the miniaturization of imaging cameras, imaging sensors, the um, the dramatic increases in speed of wireless chips, whether they're cellular, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. Uh, you look at the the miniaturization of uh, gyros and accelerometers and and the you know sensor arrays. Um, then the you know the proliferation of multi-gig uh, fiber internet, robotics, significant advances in software, where machine learning is available to the masses, and the developments of the cloud. All of that happened concurrently over the last thir- three decades. Well, of course, it has foundations that go back way more than three decades. But in the last few years, we've been witnessing it. And I've been in business for 20, well, 18 years now, just under 20 years. And I've been writing software since 1991. So I've been really able to witness this happening. And uh, it, it's really amazing now what can be developed in the timeline it can be developed in just blows away previous standards of software development and hardware development life cycles because you're standing on the shoulders of giants and you're able to lease this technology in in fractions of an hour now through cloud leasing and even equipment leasing there's just it's just uh, the barriers to entry are lower the technology that's available is higher and uh, you've got this ancient industry in insurance that's just ripe for for change um, and you have a, a whole suite of technologies that have arrived simultaneously to make it possible. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I've been uh, I've been nerding out on uh, cost curves lately, right? looking at okay, so you got Moore's law on yep. computational power, but then there's all these other places where the same kind of exponential cost curves uh, are improving. And uh, when you it starts to give you a crystal ball. And so I, I kind of know where the cost of this is going to be in five years, give or take. Now, what's the business implication of that? Uh, one of my favorites actually is in the, the life sciences part of the world, uh, sequencing the human genome, which has actually fallen faster than you know, the Moore's law price of a transistor. Um, but uh, you know, for, for the health and life insurance world, I think that starts to have a whole bunch of implications, not just from a technology perspective, but actually from a, an underwriting and even a business model perspective, perhaps. Yeah, the, the cost, just the cost of it. You think, think about how critical storage is in computation, right? It's, it's critical. The cost of storing a gigabyte 20 to 25 years ago was uh, 500 bucks. It's now less than a penny 
it far outstrips Moore's law. <laughs> it's like it's not <laughs> like the cost curves for for the cost of transistors and the cost of storage and the cost of a gig gigabyte per gigabit per second of bandwidth are astonishing. And they are truly exponential at this point. And Peter Diamandis, who I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, talks about this a lot in in promoting abundance theory and, and recognizing that the now and the future are more abundant than any news agency would like you to believe. You know, of course, the popular, if you could call it theology, is that, uh, you know, the golden era was that that of our grandparents and things have gotten worse and life is less prosperous and things are going to get com- continue to get harder. And, you know, there's a lot of people who make a lot of mon- money on fear-mongering. Um, the reality is we we work fewer hours with higher output for far less uh, cost. I mean, it's it the, the productivity curves are outrageous and the, you know, the amount of free time that we have and the amount of innovation and technology and the cost of technology. There was a really fascinating chart I saw once, Caribou, on the price of a lumen of lighting. And it, start, it started in the year 1300 when you had to use whale oil for this. And uh, it used to be outrageously expensive, a severe luxury to light things. And of course, now it's it's so low that it's hard to even compute. Um, but but that was a, a key driver in learning because people could read when it's dark. You know, there's just all of this has been happening. And insurance to me is a fascinating industry because of its history. I mean, the first, I'm not sure how how deep you've gone into the history of insurance, but the very, very first um insurance contracts are about as old as society itself. They used to be called bottomry contracts. The uh, ancient merchants of Babylon used these. This was not kidding, 6,000 years ago. Um, and they, and they, would, they would, uh, it would be a loan that if the ship was lost at sea, uh, the loan didn't have to be repaid. And the interest on the loan amount covered the insurance risk. Fascinating. And that's I, I, I've run a few, across a few other sort of archaic, perhaps, uh, insurance forms in terms of, I think my favorite is a tontine, uh, which if I try to define, I'll probably mess up. But uh, folks, can, I'm sure, can Google uh, what, a, what is a tontine. Yep. And it's a really fascinating uh, archaic insurance contract. Yeah. And it's, well, what's, what, what this says, though, is that the ability to share risk is fundamental to being able to operate as a society. So if, if it's that, you know, if it, if it co-developed with society, this must be an important problem for for you and me to be involved in. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Which means this can be fundamental to the establishing the next generation of society. So, so let's talk about the future then caribou. You're, you're, you're running arguably the largest uh, insurance technology gathering out there. And uh, with with some great people co-founding and co-running, I know there's some. I don't, I don't want to take away from the other people that are involved in, in the in the event because then you have a lot of staff that drive it too. What do you see next? Like, what's on the horizon from from an insurance technology perspective? What's the hottest stuff you see right now? And then, what's the hottest stuff you see coming next? So, there's a few technologies that are having an impact right now. Uh, I I am most obsessed with APIs. Right, the automated programming interface is the glue that connects different systems together in a kind of modular, uh, standardized way. And, and APIs have had a big impact on the banking side of the world. 
I think there's you know thousands of APIs now uh, publicly available for people to use. Uh, and I think it, it probably runs in the, the dozens or maybe a hundred in insurance. But the shift of the, the insurance technology stack to an API approach, I actually think is, is uh, very impactful for the industry structure even. Right? It's, it's not a technology strategy. I like to say it's actually a business strategy masquerading as a technology strategy when you build your business around APIs. Uh, because it, it means that you can start to assemble the best-in-class solutions. It means that you're not trying to integrate anymore. You're just you know, making use of other companies' capabilities through an API, which is usually taking a ton of friction out of the system. And then I think it's now starting to give rise to another key trend. Uh, I've, I've begun to see it called uh, embedded insurance or invisible insurance, but where an insurance provider attaches their product, either as a separate purchase or not, into someone else's product or someone else's customer experience, customer flow. Uh, and you can think about this, and it's actually been around in various forms uh, before. If you think about, you know, you're in line at Best Buy and the cashier offers you a product warranty, right? that's embedded insurance. You can, uh, if you're buying a ticket on Expedia and they're offering you travel protection, right? that's embedded insurance. But those usually require some sort of actual integration, and so there's a big friction. It's a big biz dev conversation. And APIs are now allowing that to be much more fluid, uh, much lower um, obstacle to even trying out, hey, maybe your customers would like to buy our insurance. So I think you're going to start seeing this embedded insurance notion uh, proliferate all over the place. Um, and that, in turn, is, I think, because of AP APIs. Now, well, uh, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me pause you before you jump into AI. APIs are really important. I'm also seeing a proliferation of RPA bots that are scraping systems when APIs don't exist. I'm seeing it all over the place in insurance. Carriers, TPAs, brokers are using tools like UiPath to build uh, RPA bots that just log into systems when the system doesn't have an API. Yeah, and you know, I think it's, it makes – there's so much value – in being able to connect systems yep. that, you know, jumping to a, a sort of middle state uh, un until the end state is ultimately available makes sense. It still makes good economic sense. Yeah. This is the difference, though, between what a, an insure tech startup, which is really starting with a clean slate, building out its technology stack, building out its platform, and an existing incumbent carrier or broker has to deal with, right? The incumbent uh, has a successful big business, right? That's a great thing, but it's also sometimes hamstrings them uh, in that they, they can't just sort of rebuild it and, and rebuild it with the most modern sort of tech stack approach. Uh, they've got to invest in the sort of mid-states uh, and that'll create a ton of value for them. But there is an additional layer of flexibility um, and efficiency uh, that I might argue that the startups working with a clean slate are able to achieve. That's better still. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, and I interrupted you before you were continuing about AI. I'm, I'm assuming that's what you were you were headed towards. That, that's where I was going. And, and when you asked me what's you know what's going to become the the hottest technology, obviously AI is has already become important today. Um, it, it's not something to be ignored. Um, if you give me a choice of uh, acronyms, 
I lean towards API in the short to medium term and then AI in the medium to long term in terms of impact. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think there's really interesting examples um, where uh, back to your sort of compounding benefits of these technologies, you know, think about the proliferation now of satellite imagery of rooftops. Terrific. But there's so much satellite imagery of rooftops that it's actually really hard to ask humans to process all of it uh, that you, where in places where you'd want to. And that might be where AI, or I, I prefer the term machine intelligence, can start to actually filter through and scan for it. Uh, in some cases, maybe even better than humans can, even aside from the, the fact that they can do it in greater volume, uh, cheaper, and 24-7. So I think that AI or machine intelligence um, as it continues to uh, mature and improve better and better. Uh, and I don't mean some sort of general intelligence. I like to use the, the analog of the Terminator. I don't think we're, we're any, anywhere close to having Arnold pop in in the insurance world. Uh, but I do think that focused uh, white-collar tasks can actually be offloaded quite often now. Yeah, we're, we're seeing it happen more and more. And they're using deep learning tools and machine learning and you know general AI uh, Ray Kurzweil, Peter Diamandis, they estimate 25 to 35 years for general AI to really become practical. Uh, you know, and that's, that's assuming a lot of things happen, right? Uh, what we're seeing right now is specific forms of AI, like deep learning, machine learning, image recognition, you know, NLP, natural language processing that are being used to un- to kind of uncork these gigantic reservoirs of data to use the technical term, data, giant lakes of data, right? That that have existed uh, in unstructured format for so long that we've never tapped into. I mean, we've been doing a lot of experiments with claim file notes because there's just terabytes and even exabytes of data locked up in these free text notes that humans don't have time to process. And it's amazing the results you get in analyzing the likelihood of a claim to be really expensive when you can tap into the free text that's typed in there. It's it's yeah. pretty astounding, but like yeah. well, I I was on the venture capital side when big data was the buzzword of the day, and uh, I, I think that when was that five six years ago, yep. big data was overhyped um, to to the point where I, I ended up uh, publishing an article in defense of small data, uh, but I do think that when you marry big data sets and some of this machine intelligence, that that's kind of what was missing from enabling big data to live up to its hype because there was no possible way to do anything with these giant piles of data unless you had a machine peeling through it 24 7 right. uh, or a million machines peeling through it to be more more <laughs> to be to be more realistic you know something ha has happened recently the last few years that I'd, I'd be interested in your take on and it's not something i would have expected this early in the cycle but it's happened so we got to talk about it Software guys, backed by technology VCs and private equity groups, have decided to not just start insure tech companies that are vendors for the insurance space, but to go ahead and carry risk themselves and become insurance companies that at their core are tech firms. And it's been interesting to see these come around because you know, typically when, uh, you know, let's say we were talking about insurance tech eight years ago, you were thinking, okay, well, you're 
starting a software company. That software company is going to build technology. They're going to then license that technology to a bunch of traditional carriers, brokers, TPAs, pharmacy benefit management companies, et cetera, yada, yada, yada. They're going to license it. They're going to use it to uh, improve profits at their company. And, and now we've seen a whole crop of companies coming up that said, you know what? We're software guys. We're technology guys. But instead of selling to the insurance business, we're going to go ahead and compete against them. And we're going to go ahead and carry risk. And we'll use reinsurance. We'll do all these other things. But they ended up hiring, instead of working for the insurance companies, they ended up hiring experienced insurance executives, bringing them over to a tech company, and they started carrying risk. I mean, we could talk about a lot of examples, you know, but like, you know, one that immediately comes to mind is Lemonade, right? Where these are, you know, fundamentally technologists that hired insurance folks, started carrying risk, and then built an insurance company with the heart of a tech firm. What are your thoughts on the, this advent of, of of true, you know, insure tech companies that aren't just tech vendors but are actually carrying risk? It's a big topic that you're teeing up there, and and I like to describe it as, you know, particularly when an insurance carrier or reinsurer talks to a startup, one of the first questions they both need to ask is, well, are you trying to be part of my supply chain or are you trying to ask me to be part of your supply chain? <laughs> The, the, uh, look, I, I think that there is value in the insure techs who are really B2B companies building that technology to make the insurers or the brokers more effective, more efficient. I think that some great companies are being built, going to be built there. And by the way, having invested in a few companies like that in the past, up until recently, I will say it's been a very slow, difficult slog doing that biz dev to the insurance companies. Right? Insurance companies uh, have a time scale that is different than a time scale where those kinds of B2B insure techs need to operate. Right? If you do a go to from you know a first conversation to a pilot in six months and pilot to a rollout and you know another year after that, the insurance company might feel like they're moving at a pretty good clip. And the startup might feel like they're bleeding capital every day that, it, that they're waiting for it to go through. And that may may have actually been part of the motivation why some of the uh, startups said, well, we could build this software and sell it to the carriers, but it's just going to be so slow. Um, we might actually be a lot faster if we, we apply the software ourselves and, and learn these other skills around things like distribution and risk and so on. I think that there's a, a quote um, from a Netflix executive uh, that I've used liberally, I've stolen liber- liberally around you know, Netflix asking, does HBO become Netflix faster than Netflix becomes HBO? Right. Um, which business model sort of can adapt the uh, the competencies of the other business faster? Yep. And so I think in a, in some ways it's a question of you know, to what extent can the insurance companies uh, embrace the kind of innovation mindset and replace their tech stack. Uh, what kind of pace can they do that? What kind of speed can they do that? Uh, can they do that faster than the software guys and gals out there building the, the customer-facing insurtech startups can build the, the risk and distribution competencies uh, that they need to augment their technology competencies. Now, you know, and it, it, it's not binary. It's not either or. There will be winners and losers of in every category here, I believe. You know, I, I do think that uh, we'll have to look closely at at the same 
key metrics that tell us whether a traditional insurance company is succeeding, combined ratio, loss ratio, things like that. Those things matter for the customer-facing ones too, right? for, that's for the customer-facing uh, insure-tech startups as well. You know, I, I think there's some great ones being built uh, among the, the software people. And uh, look, I think there's some really interesting, uh, you know, century-old incumbents that are actually leaning into the, the opportunities presented by technology uh, quite well. Yeah, it's to me, it's a fascinating foot race, and it is not a slow foot race. <laughs> What's going on right now is the same thing that you're seeing in many other industries, and I love your Netflix quote because it does describe this challenge. Who can adopt quicker? Can the tech guys learn insurance faster than the insurance guys can learn tech? And uh, can they not just learn, learn, adopt, and roll out, right? And then ultimately, can they solve the needs of the market faster? And I'd also, you know, be mindful that it's not binary just between nope. the insurance incumbents and the insure techs. There's a third category out there, which are these tech titans, right? Whether it's the you know, Google's and Alibaba's and Tencent's or some of the fintech Folks who have been very successful, uh, I'm biased, but Credit Karma is very near and dear to my heart. At InsureTech Connect last year, Ken Lin, the CEO of Credit Karma, announced his sort of one-click uh, multi-quote on auto insurance available to his, what, 5 million customers who not only were getting their credit score from Credit Karma, but also were getting monitoring of their car value. You know, and he's got 80 million customers overall, something like that. Like the, the, when, when you get these tech titans who bring many of the strengths already around the technology, the modern technology stack, the innovation mindset, and have the resources that are on par with a hundred-year-old insurance incumbent. Yep. Well, you know that makes a very formidable competitor. It does, and it's 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 difficult. I mean, <laughs> the barriers to entry and the risk space can be high, <laughs> right? I mean, you've got to have a lot of capital and a lot of experience, and you have to have some seasoning to be able to recognize risk. You know, you, there, there, there's got to be something there, right? And so you're seeing, you're seeing a hybrid approach uh, in some cases. And I agree with you; it's completely not binary. Uh, this is not a a simple either or statement. Um, but but it, it it will be fascinating to to witness the outcome. And of course, for all of us who are involved in the space, either from an investment perspective or a development perspective, or or both, uh, to uh, to see what uh, what happens. I, I think in the end. Uh, one of the beauties of capitalism, uh, the, the those in the end who can provide the most value to the customer, um, most likely will will prevail. But at the end, the customer will most likely win. They'll get a a better product delivered faster, uh, most likely for a better price. And uh, it's gonna at least that's what we're seeing right now. I mean, I, just take my drone insurance. I'm a commercial drone pilot. I'm a commercial pilot as well. I fly airplanes. I fly drones and. The, the difference in how I have to buy insurance on my airplane to how I have to buy insurance on my drones is, is staggering. <laughs> there, one is a very antiquated process for, for aviation, and one is very, very modern with drones. You know, I buy drone insurance by the hour and by the location. I use Verifly, and I, you know, I, it's integrated with Drone Deploy. I buy the insurance for an hour for a, a one mile radius, and then I go fly for that that good job, and then I'm then I'm done. And I, you know, I was fully insured, but I don't need insurance, so I'm not flying it. And uh, boy, boy, airplane insurance is not the same way. Um, but it's it is really really fascinating to see 
um, on the consumer perspective, how how much better certain experiences are getting, and of course, uh, the uh, the price and cost impact of that. So, I believe what's so interesting about that example, by the way, uh, I, I know Verifly, and I believe last time I checked that Markel, uh, the commercial insurer in, in my hometown now of Richmond, Virginia, is actually providing the paper for it. Um, so, yep. you know, sort of kudos to Markel for partnering with. A startup and kudos to Verify for partnering with an incumbent. Yeah, in a way that actually enables new products that, in theory, I suppose they could each you know eventually get to on their own. But in practice, uh, it's greatly accelerated to the benefit of you, the, the insured that they're working together. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, let's let's wrap this conversation up with uh, InsureTech Connect. Uh, just a reminder to everybody: if they haven't registered yet and they still want to go to this, it's September 23rd to 25th at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. Website is insuretechconnect.com. Do you have any final comments for those listening out there that may want to attend the conference? I'd say it's going to be a place where you can see things that you won't see elsewhere. It's actually got a very international aspect to it. And I think so much of the innovation happening in InsureTech is not limited to just the U.S. I think there's great benefits you can get from that perspective. We've made it so it's a conference that I want to go to, and uh, there aren't many like that. So I hope it's a conference that other people want to go to as well. That's awesome. Well, cannot thank you enough for jumping on the show with us. Uh, Kara Buhonig, uh, you are a fascinating discussion, and, and I really appreciate your time and you sharing your brain space with us. Well, it's really been my pleasure. I appreciate you having me with you. All right. Thanks, Caribou. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology. It's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. I've been joined by Caribou Honig. It's been an awesome show. Thanks for joining us this week, and I look forward to talking with you soon. Remember, we're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out.